Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. It has been a long time since I've been here talking to you all, and I'm glad to be back. Not to get all misty-eyed, but I miss doing this an absolute ton, and I'm so excited to be making the episodes again. I hope you guys are ready to start a new one. Now, without going too long into how much I missed you all, let's get into our episode. This week, we're going to cover a disaster that is near and dear to everyone's hearts. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in November of 1975. I cannot promise I will not start singing at some point, although I will try not to, not to subject you all to my awful singing. The only one who gets to be subjected to my awful singing is my daughter, who gets to hear Misty Mountains every night. So full disclosure, I'm adding this part after the episode is already released, because on May 1st, 2023, the writer and singer of the song The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Gordon Lightfoot, died at age 84. Now, on the day The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald happened... The Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 29 times, one time for each soul aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald. On May 1, 2023, the day Gordon Lightfoot died, the Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 30 times, once for each soul aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald, and once for Gordon Lightfoot, who brought its story to be known around the world with his song. So, way back in January of 2022, we covered the White Hurricane on the Great Lakes. And as you may or may not know, the Edmund Fitzgerald sank on the Great Lakes. And because it has been so long since we covered anything on those lakes, let's take a revisit to them. If you don't know, the Great Lakes are large. Like, unimaginably large. Borderline inland sea level large. If Lake Superior, the biggest of them all, was its own state, it would be the 39th largest by land area. The smallest of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario, is still bigger than Hawaii, Connecticut, Delaware, and Rhode Island. It's almost bigger than the last three combined. They are big, and they are violent, regularly having massive storm systems that have impacts all over the upper Midwest and into New England. Now, if you remember back to Buffalo earlier this year when they got an absolute ton of snow dumped on them, that's the power of the Great Lakes in action. Regularly, they also have other massive storm systems that have impacts all over the upper Midwest, and these massive storm systems are extremely common in November and have a name. They are called the Witches of November or the Gales of November. I'm partial to the Witches of November. It sounds really cool. This occurs when warm air from the Gulf and cold air from the polar regions meet and create what's called a mid-latitude cyclone. Where the warm air and cold air meet begins to rotate in a counterclockwise manner just like a hurricane or tropical cyclone. Except instead of being small and compact like most cyclones in the coast, they are generally two to three times the size. So hurricanes are about 300 miles wide on average. Mid-latitude cyclones typically hit about 1,000 miles wide. So we're talking very, very large. They're usually less powerful overall, but it's still a big system. The storm systems that cover the Great Lakes and the likes are absolutely an experience to witness. They tend to last days. Not like the storm starts and isn't bad for a while, then has a bad portion for an hour or two, then rains the rest. No, no, these storms are bad essentially the entire time. For literally days. One of these storms is what the Edmund Fitzgerald headed into in November of 1975. The SS set Edmund Fitzgerald which I'll either call Fitzgerald or Fitz a lot in this episode because saying Edmund Fitzgerald every time is just a lot. But the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was a straight-deck bulk cargo vessel. 
It was 729 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 39 feet in height. It was an absolute hulking monstrosity of a ship, and for good reason. The ship was going to be exactly one foot short of the maximum length allowed through the Sault Ste. Marie locks, which means they could carry the maximum amount of ore. It would be the largest ship to ever sail the Great Lakes. The ship had been ordered by the Northwestern Life Mutual Insurance Company specifically to haul ore, which sounds weird. Why would a life insurance company order a ship to haul ore? Well, it turns out insurance companies do things with all that premium money, and it is primarily they invest it to make themselves more money. This one specifically was a big investor in iron and ores. Hence, they would want a large and fast ship that could quickly transverse large amounts of material across the Great Lakes, because there is a ton of material that is shipped across the Great Lakes. And if you build a ship, say, a foot short of the maximum amount of length in the Sault Ste. Marie locks, well, then you get to haul more ore than anybody else, making you more money. It makes sense. In total, the Edmund Fitzgerald cost $8.4 million in 1957. That's a whopping $90 million today. It was able to hold upwards of 25,000 tons of cargo within its hold, which, if you're keeping track at home, is 50 million pounds. The Edmund Fitzgerald was first launched on June 7, 1958. There was an entire ceremony that had a relatively large crowd of 10,000-ish people. After the typical pomp and circumstance of a boat launch, it came time to christen the boat and break a bottle of champagne over the ship's bow. As for why we do that, well, it's one of those things that has kind of transformed over the centuries. Way back in the 16th century, the kings of England would pour some wine out of a silver goblet on the deck, then throw the goblet overboard to christen the ship. Which you'll note, will get expensive, especially as the British Empire really got into their shipbuilding area in the 17th and 18th century when they were launching ships left and right. So, instead of chucking a silver goblet overboard every time, they just started smashing bottles of wine against them instead. Then, Queen Victoria smashed a bottle of champagne against a boat in 1891, and from then on, it became champagne. Because when the Queen does it, everyone else wants to do it, too. But, back to our main story here. The person christening the boat was to be the president and CEO of Northwestern Mutual's wife, Elizabeth Fitzgerald. She said some words and swung the bottle at the bow. Then came the sound you definitely don't want to hear when christening a ship. Not the celebratory shattering of glass. No, she heard a loud thunk. The bottle didn't break. So she reared back and swung a second time. And again, a resounding thunk. Undeterred, she swung a third time, and we finally had that happy sound of shattering glass. Now we know... Sailors are a superstitious lot, and the bottle not breaking on the first thing is a sign of bad luck, and that death and misfortune will befall the ship and the crew. It's even worse when it doesn't break on the second time. But it would get worse before the boat was even in the water. The ship was then supposed to be dropped out of dry dock and slid down timbers smeared with oil into the Detroit River. But the shipbuilding crew had to struggle to get the blocks out to allow the ship to be released. Finally, when they succeeded, the ship slid down into the water, except it hit weird and rocked back and forth, nearly tipping the ship over in the river. When it hit the water, it created a massive wave that washed up on the stands, soaking the crowd and slightly terrifying them. 
there amongst the crowd was a man who had driven there from Toledo to watch the launch by the name of Jennings Fraser. When the ship slid down and the giant wave hit them, he had a heart attack and died on the spot. He was the first, but not last, victim on the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. A bottle failing to break on the christening and a man dying at lunch? That's a terrible omen of bad luck for a ship. But they pressed on regardless, because again, it cost $90 million. Now, in a shocking turn of events, the name came from President and CEO of Northwestern Mutual, Edmund Fitzgerald, which you probably could have guessed when Fitzgerald was the last name of the lady who, you know, tried and failed to christen the ship successfully the first time. Now, Edmund Fitzgerald very much did not want the ship named after himself, but the board overruled him. He suggested other names such as Centennial, Milwaukee, Seaway, and Northwestern, Northwestern after the name of the insurance company that owned it, but the board would not have it and his name was used. Now, it sounds weird, but it's not like he wasn't well-versed in Great Lakes shipping. His grandfather had been a ship captain on the Great Lakes. His dad owned a shipbuilding company. All of his brothers were ship captains, and he was extremely involved in shipping on the lakes and was helping to start the Wisconsin Maritime Historical Society. Like, he was involved, and he was well-known throughout the area. Basically, he was living, breathing Great Lakes shipping, just had gone a slightly different way in his professional life. He still loved the lakes and loved the shipping. He just kind of went a different way, and to his credit, did not want his name used on the boat, because, you know, he wasn't a captain or anything like that, but they did it anyway. From that point on, it was the Edmund Fitzgerald breaking record after record after record for shipping on the Great Lakes. Within the first month of being in the water, the Edmund Fitzgerald broke the record for the most ore ever carried through the Sioux Locks which makes sense because it was the biggest boat that had ever been on the Great Lakes. And then the ship broke his own record. And then it did it again, and again, and again. And eventually, the Edmund Fitzgerald would be the first ship to haul 30,000 tons of ore in one shipment, and the first ship to haul over 1 million tons of ore through an entire shipping season, which again makes sense because it is the largest ship on all of the lakes. This wasn't done without incident, though. The Fitzgerald semi-regularly crashed into the walls of the Sioux Locks. The ship collided with at least one other ship and ran aground at least once. But none of these were ever, like, super damaging or super noteworthy. It was just kind of stuff that happens when you're on, when the boat is on the water in the same area for 30-something years. That's just, things happen on occasion. There are accidents all the time. By 1972 the ship began under a new captain, Ernest Michael McSorley. He was a well-seasoned captain, having been on the ships across the Great Lakes for the last 41 years. He knew his stuff, and he knew it well, and everyone says that he was an extremely professional, extremely competent captain. So that brings us to 8.30 a.m. on November 9th, 1975. The Edmund Fitzgerald was sitting in Superior, Wisconsin, taking on yet another load of taconite ore. Taconite is a low-grade iron ore often used in automobile manufacturing. This was a late shipment that the Fitzgerald was trying to squeeze in before the end of the season. Just a few days prior, the ship had undergone a mandatory Coast Guard inspection of the spar deck 
basically the top deck where the loads are loaded through, and had passed, sort of. You see, during the loading of Taconite Ore, the covers for the hatches would be damaged by the chutes dropping the load in when they were banging around dropping all that heavy ore. As the shipping season went on, this damage would grow and grow until making an actual watertight seal around the hatches nearly impossible. This is incredibly important, because if water gets in the hold, it can change everything on the ship and cause it to lose buoyancy and flat out sink. And because it's ore, the water seeps into the actual ore itself, and you can't see how much water is actually inside the load. So if you have several of these covers come off and water's getting inside, you have no idea how much is in there because you can't see the bottom of it because it's just going to seep to the bottom. And if you've got, like, there's pumps in the bottom of the boat that's supposed to pump water out, but it's not in the actual cargo hold. It's in the bottom of the boat. So you have no way of knowing whether or not you're going to lose buoyancy and you need to abandon ship because of how much water is in the cargo hold. It's extremely important that these seals are watertight. The Coast Guard inspection of this area for the Edmund Fitzgerald on Halloween of 1975 found that four of the ship's 21 hatches failed to close properly and could allow water inside. This damage was considered normal season wear and tear, and so they were approved to con continue on carrying loads with the agreement that the problems would be fixed in the shipping off-season, which was coming up soon. Lake Superior freezes and the Sioux locks freeze, so you kind of can't ship when everything's frozen. So there's an off-season for shipping. As the morning went on, the load in the Fitzgerald got larger and larger. Now there's a thing on a ship called the freeboard. It's not actually on a ship, it's just a thing that's related to shipping. Essentially, this is the distance between the top of the deck of the ship and the water line. The freeboard is different during the summer and the winter, as during winter, the waves on the Great Lakes tend to be much larger and the storms much stronger. So... You have a higher freeboard in the winter means the waves have to be much bigger to make it up on the deck. So when the lake's calm in the summer, you don't need as much freeboard because you're unlikely to run into waves big enough to actually wash up over the freeboard. But in the wintertime, it needs to be higher because there often are lake, or waves that are bigger than the freeboard. So you need to have that extra space. The Edmund Fitzgerald had been built in 1957 to have 14 feet three and a half inches of freeboard during the winter. Naturally, as the load size gets larger, the ship sits lower and lower in the water. By that November morning in 1975, the freeboard required for wintertime on the Edmund Fitzgerald was a mere 11 feet six inches. This had been changed by both the company and the Coast Guard. This allowed for bigger shipments and more money, essentially. But it made it much more dangerous to travel in the wintertime. At around 2.15 p.m., the loading was done, and the Edmund Fitzgerald was headed out of the Superior Wisconsin docks and out into the open lake with its full shipment of taconite ore bound for Zug Island, Michigan. While the ship was loading that day, one of the crew members, third mate Mark Armagost, took the opportunity of being so close to his home that he went to visit his wife Janice and the kids for the morning while the boat loaded up. After she had dropped Mike back off at the shipyard, Janice drove herself and the kids to a spot where she knew the Fitzgerald would travel close to, and her and the kids could wave goodbye to Mike one last time before the ship headed out to open water. The ship indeed traveled close by, and they waved to people on the deck and called out asking where Mike was. One of the crew members yelled back that he was below deck somewhere before the ship was too far away to yell back to. Unbeknownst to Janice and her kids, they were the last people 
to see anyone on the Edmund Fitzgerald alive again. At about the same time, elsewhere in the U.S., the National Weather Service had seen a low-pressure storm system originate over Texas on November 8th and begin to travel in a northeastern direction and would pass just south of Lake Superior around 7 p.m. on November 10th. This would bring relatively strong gale-force winds to the lake, but nothing that the Edmund Fitzgerald hadn't experienced countless times before. On board the ship, Captain McSorley was aware of the storm and continued on thinking this wasn't that big of a deal. They dealt with much worse. He was known as a all-weather captain. Like his, his whole thing was being able to sail in whatever weather was thrown at them. Now we're going to take a brief pause here and explain some things because it's important for context. When wind is described by weather forecast, it is always easterly wind, northerly wind, and so on. This means that the wind is coming from the east and blowing in the direction of the west, or blowing from the north in the direction of the south. Keep that in mind because it's going to be important. And to be honest, I always get it backwards. It confuses me every single time. I've read it and reread it numerous times for these episodes, and I always get it wrong. So I like to explain it to you all because if you all get it confused too, I like to make sure that you understand. The next thing I want to explain is the difference between a gale and a storm. A gale warning means the wind speeds will be in the range of 39 miles per hour, or 34 knots, to 54 miles per hour, or 47 knots. That is a gale. A storm warning is issued for winds above 55 miles per hour, or 48 knots, to 72 miles per hour, or 63 knots. Anything above 72 miles per hour on the Great Lakes becomes a really bad day. Now, these are sustained winds. This is continuous wind speed of 39 miles per hour, at least. The gusts will very likely be well above that. Alright, with that out of the way, at 1 p.m. on November 9, 1975, the storm shifted track and was going to head right over the top of Lake Superior. At 7 p.m., the National Weather Service released a gale warning for all of Lake Superior. That means that there's going to be winds, sustained winds, of at least 39 miles per hour. It's, it's going to be windy. Now is a good time to add in our other ship of importance here, the Arthur M. Anderson. The Arthur Anderson set sail from Two Harbors, Minnesota, headed for Gary, Indiana, with a load of iron ore as well, captained by Jesse Cooper, as veteran a captain as McSorley. Similar in size, but slightly slower than the Fitzgerald, the two ships traveled in parallel for a while. Captain Cooper heard the updated gale warning at 7 p.m. and decided to radio the Fitzgerald to talk with McSorley and see what he thought about the storm. Both ships were weather reporters to the NWS, the National Weather Service, so they had various weather equipment on board that they would use to radio conditions back to the National Weather Service so they could update predictions and send them out to any other ships out on the lakes. The captains weren't overly concerned about the gale, minus one thing, how big the waves would get. There are a couple things that make waves bigger. Wind speed is one, faster winds mean bigger waves. The duration of the winds, the longer the wind blows at that faster speed, the bigger the waves. And something that is called the fetch. Fetch is the distance the wind travels over an open flat area. There's not much more open, or flat, than Lake Superior. It is a gigantic flat lake. So there is a lot of space for that wind to build up, build up, and make the waves much, much bigger. The current location of the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur Anderson was on the southwest end of Lake Superior. The wind was going to be blowing from the northeast, 
meaning the wind had the entire length of Lake Superior to build up strength headed right for them. This was major cause for concern, but they were determined they could make it to a relative place of safety before the worst of the storm hit them, so they soldiered on. By 1 a.m., conditions had worsened significantly. The weather report from the Fitzgerald to the National Weather Service at 1 a.m. was as follows. 60 mile an hour winds from the northeast. Heavy rain, visibility down to 2 to 4 miles. Waves 10 feet high hitting the Fitzgerald. At 2 a.m., the National Weather Service upgraded their warning for all of Lake Superior to a storm warning. This meant winds of 60 mile an hour plus. And just as a reminder, this isn't wind gusts of 60 miles per hour. This is sustained wind for as long as the storm lasts at 60 miles per hour. Gusts will definitely be significantly higher. This new update made the two captains take pause. After conferring on the radio, they decided to shift their track slightly and head more northward to travel along the north shore of Lake Superior to try and shelter from the wind a bit. By 3 a.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald had passed the Arthur Anderson, but conditions were getting worse by the minute. At 7 a.m. the next day, Captain McSorley called his bosses and told them their arrival at the Sioux Locks would be later than expected because of the storm. This was on November 10th, 1975. Finally, around 12 p.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald had made it to the place where they would have to turn south and travel across open waters to make it to the Sioux Locks. If you're keeping track on a map, that is just west of Mishapicoten. God, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Mishapicoten Island in the northeastern corner of Lake Superior. Now, all of that is a long time to gloss over a bit. So I'm going to go back and kind of guide you through what happened here. So where the Edmund Fitzgerald left in Lake Superior was the very point, the very west end of Lake Superior, like as far west as you can get in Lake Superior, in that little point there on the western end, that's where they were. When they went out, they basically went out at a straight diagonal line out of that point, right in the middle of the lake. Now there's an island up on the northwest side that they used as a little bit of uh, protection as the storm got stronger. And because of the direction the wind was coming from, they kind of took a more northern route through the uh, lake than they normally would because it was longer, but they had their protection of the woods and the, the lakeshore from the wind. So the wind couldn't blow across the lake as long and make the waves as bigger if they had taken the southern route that was faster. So they eventually, once they get across Lake Superior, they're going to have to go south because that's where the suit locks are. They're on the south end, the southeast end of Lake Superior to go into Lake Michigan and Lake Huron and all of that. So eventually, they're going to have to travel across open water to get to the locks where they need to go, but they used this time throughout the day to avoid the majority of the wind. So it was, I mean, it was eventful because getting hit by 10-foot waves all the time and cold and rain and all that is going to be eventful, but nothing really happened major that we really need to talk about. It was just a big boat and a storm, and they didn't really have any problems. So all of the problems that happened with the Edmund Fitzgerald is going to come up beginning now. So after they made their little turn south to head toward Whitefish Bay and the Sioux Locks, at about 1 p.m., the Fitzgerald made it into the eye of the storm. 
Yes, much like a hurricane, this storm had an eye of calmish seas and relative peace. It's much, it's basically an inland hurricane. Like, that's the easiest way to describe it. If there are meteorologist experts out there, they're going to yell at me, but it's the easiest way to describe it. It is a gigantic inland hurricane. It's not as strong. It's much, much less damage on the actual land. It's a lot of damage on land, but it's much less powerful than an actual hurricane, and it's just... It's just easier to describe it as an inland hurricane. They can, if you want to yell at me, you can. But that's how I'm going to describe it to make it easy. This eye was a false sense of security. The opposite side of this was going to be a nightmare with winds starting to come from the northwest instead of the northeast. Now, again, looking at Lake Superior, the winds coming from the northeast, they could travel along the north side, north shore near Canada to cut down on the amount of wind that was hitting them. But when the winds shifted from blowing out of the northwest to the southeast, they now have the entirety of the open lake to blow those waves and build them up as high as possible to make them giant waves that were now hitting them. And unfortunately, there was nowhere to hide during this. They had to go over open water. It was the only way to get to safety because keeping them on the north shore isn't going to keep them safe because of the angle of how Lake Superior is. So even if they had stood, stayed there, they, they wouldn't have been safe. They had to make a run for Whitefish Bay. They just had to hope that the ship would prove stronger than the storm, just like it had so many times prior to this. Almost as soon as they left the eye, things went downhill rapidly. The Fitzgerald started on a heading towards Caribou Island, which is a small island just inside the Canadian border. Like, really small. This was not for shelter, though. If anything, getting too close to this island could spell certain doom for the ship. The water here was barely 30 feet deep and was sitting on extremely sharp and strong rocks. There is a shoal, a rocky outcropping underwater, that sticks out from the northern point of Caribou Island called Six Fathom Shoals. Probably because it sits about 36 feet below the water, which is six to fathoms. Humans are not creative with names. When waves are pounding and wind is blowing and the ship is going up and down and up and down and up and down, that shoal is incredibly close to the surface. The radar on the Anderson showed the Fitzgerald go directly over it. It was at this point, as the Arthur Anderson and the Edmund Fitzgerald were approaching Caribou Island, the rain and now sleet turned from pretty terrible to an absolutely blinding whiteout blizzard. Visibility dropped to zero and the Arthur Anderson lost complete sight of the Edmund Fitzgerald. They never actually got that close. They were a couple, four, five, six miles away. They could see their lights because it's flat, like it's an open lake. So you can see ships a long way away. They never got that close, but they lost complete sight of even their lights. This was about 3.15 p.m. the afternoon of November 10th, 1975. Fifteen minutes later, the Fitzgerald sent out a message that said, Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have sustained topside damage. I have a fence rail down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. I am checking down. Will you stay with me till I get to Whitefish? At this point, the only way the Anderson can actually see the Fitzgerald is on the radar. The Edmund Fitzgerald had suffered some damage and was leaning slightly to one side. That's what a list means. It means the ship is leaning slightly to one side meaning they were taking on water somewhere, because the water's not sitting evenly across the bottom, it's leaning one direction, so the ship's going to lean that direction. Luckily, all the pumps on the Fitzgerald were still in working order, 
two could pump out 7,000 gallons of water per minute, and two could pump out 2,000 gallons of water per minute. So all was not lost if they could make it through the storm to Whitefish Bay. But the storm was getting worse, not better. At 4.10 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed the Anderson that he had lost both radars on the Fitzgerald and was going blind. Literally, like he had no way to, they're, they're in a whiteout blizzard, so they can't see. They'd lost both their radars, so they have no idea where anything is or any ships are. The, that's that's a, another thing. When you lose radar, not only do you lose where you're at in the lake, but you lose track of where anything else is in the lake. So if there are other boats out there, he will not see them until he hits them. That is a major problem. So Captain McSorley did the first thing he thought of, and that was ask the Anderson to help guide him to safety. But knowing full well that the Anderson was in the same storm he was that just took out his radar, he banked on a backup plan. Luckily, he was near-ish the Whitefish Point Lighthouse. Unluckily, it was also being hit by the same storm he was in. Captain McSorley radioed the Grand Marais Coast Guard Station to see if the lighthouse was operational because he had made contact with the lighthouse a single time and then immediately lost it. The Coast Guard answered that they didn't know if it was still operational because they didn't have the equipment available to test it at the moment. So McSorley made a call out to any ship near the lighthouse asking if they had contact with the lighthouse. One ship answered, the Abifors. The captain of the Abifors, Cedric Woodard, could make out the lighthouse through the blinding, driving snow. But he could also see that it was not functional. Now, the freight shipping industry on the Great Lakes is relatively small, and the captains of those freighters is even smaller. So most of them know each other. Captain Woodard had no idea who was talking to him over the radio, and he thought it was weird. So he asked who he was talking to on the radio, and the reply of, this is Captain McSorley, shocked him. He'd been friends with McSorley for years, and he couldn't recognize his friend's voice. It sounded so different. But before he could even ask anything, Captain McSorley yelled in the middle of their call, Don't allow nobody on deck. Which is weird. First of all, why would anybody be on deck in a storm like this, with huge waves consistently crashing over the railings and drenching everything with solid ice? And second of all, what terrible thing was happening on deck that they felt they needed to risk their lives to fix it to possibly, potentially save the ship? That's a weird thing that has never been explained. About an hour or two later, the Avifors called the Edmund Fitzgerald back to give them goodish news. The radio signal was still not working at Whitefish Point Lighthouse, but the light was back on. So maybe he could see it and guide his ship to safety, even without the radar. It was at this point that McSorley relayed to the Abifors that he was taking heavy seas over the deck, he had no radar, and it was the worst sea he'd ever been in in his life. Which is saying something considering he'd been on the Great Lakes for the last 40 plus years. So think how many storms, how many November storms that he had seen in 40 plus years, and this was the worst one he had ever experienced. This is not a good situation to be in. Winds at this point were between 60 and 70 miles per hour, with gusts going over 100 miles per hour. It was bad, and it was a driving, blinding snowstorm, on top of the fact he could not see a thing on the radar. So he couldn't see visually, he couldn't see with radar, and the lighthouse was in and out. So 
he was entirely reliant upon guides from the Arthur Anderson, who was also in the same snowstorm, just actually happened to have radar still. But McSorley was in a rough spot. Like, this was not good. At around 6.20 or so p.m., something strange happened aboard the Anderson while they were trying to fight this storm. The captain and the first mate up in the pilot house felt a very aggressive bump. M- more more aggressive than normal. Like, like they're being hit by 10 to 15 foot waves, so they're going to be bumped a lot. But like this one, this one was different. This was a much, much bigger bump. They looked at the ship, and a giant wave crashed over the ship and covered it completely in water, which is never good. Like, when you're on a boat, and a giant wave comes over the top and drenches everything on your ship, especially one the size of the Arthur M. Anderson, which is 700-something feet long, and it just drenches in water, that's terrifying. But they didn't have time to be fully terrified, because just a minute or so later, a second massive wave crashed onto the ship before any of the water from the first wave had managed to wash itself off again. So it was drenched with a second giant wave of water, which, if you hit by one wave that fills your boat with water, and as you're waiting for that water to maybe drain off, you get hit by a second giant wave of water that just adds more water to the already existing water on your ship, you're going to start getting concerned because, um, well, if the water gets inside the boat, then the boat isn't going to float anymore. So it, it was concerning. And it was also concerning because Captain Cooper wasn't just worried about his ship because, like, his ship was doing all right. He was, it, I mean, it's rough. It's, it's rough being hit by consistently giant waves over and over again. But he was also guiding another ship that had 29 people on board that was already listing badly to one side. And these giant waves that just drenched him were definitely going to hit the Fitzgerald at some point. And with them already in a list and taking on water, that was just going to make it worse. So he he was worried, but he was fairly confident that McSorley could handle it. Remember, he's been on the lake for 40 plus years. The man knows what he's doing. And these kinds of jobs tend to lead to people who don't want to ask for help don't want to offer help for fear of being mocked or being ostracized because they thought someone else couldn't do it. It's it's a pride thing. Like that's that's what's going on here. There's there's a pride that I can take care of my boat. Like I don't on top of like I don't want to admit that this wave was frightening by telling someone else, hey, look out for it, but also I don't want to call into question his ability to handle his own ship. Like, that, it's a, a whole weird pride thing. But anyway, at 7 p.m., the Anderson radioed the Fitzgerald to sell them they were 17 miles from Whitefish Bay and safety. We haven't got far to go. We will soon have made it. First mate Morgan Clark of the Anderson said, Yes, we will. Captain McSorley responded. Now, if you'll note, almost none of the replies from McSorley over the radio showed any signs of apprehension or fear. The only one who was concerned was someone who has known him for years, and that was the captain of the Aviforce, had known McSorley for years, so he knew that he sounded stressed. Everyone else just thought he was doing all right, maybe a little bit tired because he'd been up for a while fighting this storm, but that's just what it is. And, and it makes sense. 
If you call across the radio on the lake where every single boat on the lake can hear you, hey, I might be sinking here soon, and you make it through the storm, they're going to mock you forever. If you are actually sinking, that is one thing. But to announce you are, and then not, well, that's never going to be lived down. Like, there's a lot of pride for these ship captains. So, announcing, hey, I'm going down, and then you make it the last 17 miles to Whitefish Bay and are safe, they're gonna, they're going to mock you forever for that. Like, you raised a storm, raised up a stink about how you were going down, and then you didn't. That's, they're, they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna give you some not nice nicknames, most likely. The, the boy who cried wolf, all of that, it's not going to be fun for you. So they're just not going to. Unless they know for certain the boat is mostly underwater or the boat has literally split in half, they are not going to call for help. At 7.10 p.m., First Mate Clark on the Anderson radioed the Fitzgerald back to let them know the Anderson was going to pass to the west of them soon. At the end of the conversation they had, Clark asked, Oh, by the way, how are you making out with your problems? Captain McSorley replied, We are holding our own. Those were the last words anyone would ever hear from anyone aboard the Edmund Fitzgerald. A massive snow squall then appeared in the middle of the radar screen and turned the whole thing into a bright flash of white in which the blinking flash of the Fitzgerald on the radar disappeared. When the snow squall dissipated, and the radar returned to normal just a few minutes later, the radar blip for the Fitzgerald was gone. The Anderson tried multiple times to call the Edmund Fitzgerald, but there was no answer. The crew aboard the Anderson tried for some time to find the lights of the Fitzgerald along the lake somewhere, but there was no luck. They thought maybe they'd suffered a power outage or something like that, but they couldn't find anything. About 30 minutes after the last transmission with the Fitzgerald, the Anderson radioed the Coast Guard distress channel to report the Fitzgerald missing. Captain Cooper was told to call back on a different channel. When he called on that channel, no one answered. It would take a full hour before anyone answered the radio call at 8.30 p.m. They acknowledged the call, then said they would try to contact the Edmund Fitzgerald. And then there was silence. For an hour. The Arthur Anderson would call back a fourth time at right around 9 p.m. to the Coast Guard, nearly a full two hours after the last official contact with the Edmund Fitzgerald, and the Coast Guard said they would send out a search and rescue team. Finally. Except the closest Coast Guard search and rescue boat, the Naugatuck, wouldn't leave Whitefish Bay, couldn't leave Whitefish Bay, because they were not permitted out in winds stronger than 60 knots, which it very obviously was that night. So they were effectively useless. The Naugatuck would not arrive at the area the Fitzgerald was last seen until 12.45 p.m. on November 11th, 15 hours after the ship disappeared. The next Coast Guard boat that could handle the water was the Woodrush, the Woodrush was 300 miles away in Duluth, Minnesota. It would take 24 hours to get there. Utterly unhelpful. Three rescue aircraft from the Coast Guard took off right around 10 p.m., which is not going to be helpful because it's windy and there's giant waves. How are they going to rescue anyone from the water? 
So the Coast Guard did the only thing they could think of after that. They radioed the Arthur Anderson back and asked them to go back out of Whitefish Bay and do search and rescue themselves. They were the only boat capable of weathering the current storm in the area. Captain Cooper immediately answered what we all would answer. Do you know what you are asking me to do? He had just survived this storm. His crew was exhausted. He was exhausted. This was one of the worst storms in decades. And the Coast Guard, the people whose entire job it was to go out and rescue boats that had been stuck in the storm or sank, was asking him to go out into the storm and do their job. It was madness. Like, I, I can't imagine hearing calling for help getting told no, then not getting any answer, and then being told, okay, well, we're going to call him and see what happens, then not hearing anything for an hour, and then calling back two hours after you reported it gone, and then being like, oh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and send out a rescue boat, and then them calling sometime later and being like, ah, our rescue boat actually can't leave the bay. We're going to need you to do it? No. Like, absolutely not. I, that's... That's not my job. Uh, I have a crew to worry about who's not trained in doing rescue missions. What are you talking about? His first reaction, <laughs> as I think would anyone's, was no. Absolutely not. I will not be doing that. But then he continued to think about it and was given a little bit of a guilt trip by the Coast Guard worker and began to be swayed. If you want me to, I can but I'm not going to be making any time. On his way into Whitefish Bay, he'd actually been sort of kind of traveling with the wind to go back out there and search for the Edmund Fitzgerald or any survivors. He was going to have to be fighting the wind and the waves the other direction. So it was going to take him forever to get back to the area. Eventually, Captain Cooper would agree to take his crew and ship back out there to look for the Fitzgerald. I cannot imagine how that conversation went with his crew. Hey guys, I know we just barely survived this storm, and another ship that's about our size appears to have been lost with everyone on it, but uh, we're going to go back out there and look for him. So, does that sound good to you guys? There's a story from the captain that after he told the crew what they were doing, one of the crew members of the Arthur Anderson went back to his cabin recorded his last will and testament on a tape recorder, and then sealed it in a jar. You know, as one is wont to do on suicidal rescue missions. Because in all seriousness, that is what this appeared to be. But they did it anyway. Like, can you imagine barely surviving, watching another ship just disappear out of nowhere, and be your captain coming to you and be like, yep, we're going to go back out and try and find them. You don't know what's out there. You don't know how much debris is on the ground. You don't, or on the ground, on the water. You don't know how much, like, you don't know if something hit them and they sank. You don't know what happened there if they ran aground and sank. You don't, you don't know anything. So, going out there in this massive 15 to 20 foot waves that are consistently hitting them is going to feel like a suicide mission. But they did it anyway because they knew. If they managed to find one survivor, that would be one miracle. Three strips were out on Superior and were also called to help with the completely thrown-together rescue mission. 
Only one agreed to slow down and maybe sort of swing by one of the last areas the Fitzgerald was seen. The other two flat out declined. In Whitefish Bay, there were several ships that were anchored in Whitefish Bay, only two of which agreed to go out and search. One lasted 30 minutes before being forced to turn back. That means, at first, when it first happened, two ships, who had already been through a bunch of this storm already, were the only ones on the water looking for the ship that actually went down in the storm. So you have two ships who are not trained in rescue missions, who have already survived this storm once to make it to safety, now being forced to go back out there and find the ship of similar size and make to theirs, and hope those don't go down too. This is not a good spot the Coast Guard put themselves in. Because they did. Like, they put themselves in. To not have a ship that could withstand the massive strength of the storms on Lake Superior that they could take out to do rescue missions is a major problem and is their fault entirely. You can't say, hey, our job, if you get in trouble, call us, we will come rescue you, if you don't have the equipment available to go out and rescue them. And to ask the people who are surviving the storm to go out and do it themselves is madness. That's just asking to get... That's like me saying, oh, I showed out without my air tank, I can't go inside the building that's on fire, I'm going to need you to go back inside and save your family. What? No. <laughs> or showing up to an apartment building and say apartment A has made it out of the building and apartment B is on the second floor and I show up without air and I'm like, ah, apartment A, I'm going to need you to go rescue apartment B because I can't go in there. What? No, that's not how this works. You are a firefighter, you go in and rescue them. But that's, that's what the Coast Guard decided to do. And to the credit of these ships, they went back out there. And they did their absolute hardest to find whatever was left of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now the Coast Guard had sent out several aircraft, but trying to do anything resembling an air rescue in the waves and the water was going to be impossible. Like, even... Even if you could find someone, how are you going to get anything down to them to actually rescue them? Because as soon as you drop something down in the water, it's going to be taken, either hit the person that you're dropping it by and kill them, hit the person you're dropping it by, knock them unconscious, in which case they drown and die, or your entire aircraft crashes into the waves because you can't, you have to get so low to get it down to get in between the waves, and then everyone crashes and dies, and now you have to find a plane and a boat. Like, it's or helicopter in the boat, or whatever. Like, it's it's a terrible situation that no one should have been out in, but the fact the Coast Guard did not have a boat capable of going out in it massively hindered any operations. It probably wouldn't have mattered here, but, again, you can't be the one that says, I'm going to rescue people when they're out on the lake stuck in a storm and then not have the capability to go out and rescue them when they're stuck in a lake on a storm. Unfortunately, literally none of this mattered. There was no sign of anyone. There wasn't even signs of the ship. There was no oil slick. There was no debris. There was nothing. It was like the ship had just vanished. Which is absolutely crazy, because this is one of the biggest ships in the history of the Great Lakes that was just simply gone. It showed up on radar. It showed up in the snowstorm. And when the snowstorm went through and then dissipated, it just vanished. Eventually, about an hour or so later, 
the second life bone was found around 10 p.m. No one was inside, and it was massively destroyed like it had been ripped off the ship. Next came the inflatable lifeboats. No one inside them. Then, slowly over the next day, they found 20 of the Edmund Fitzgerald's life jackets scattered along the area around Lake Superior. They found 20 life jackets, but they found no bodies. There would be the occasional piece of wood, or a step stool, or random other odd item from the ship, but nothing else would be found. The detailed search would last until 10 p.m. on November 13th. Then once a day, the Coast Guard would fly over the area for seven straight days. Then once a week until January 1st. No matter where they looked, how long they looked, or how hard they looked, not a single soul of the 29 sailors on the Edmund Fitzgerald was ever found. Lake Superior was determined to never give up her dead. No one knew how the ship went down. No one even knew where the ship was. The only thing they could kind of survive was the ship went down faster than anyone on the board could access life safety measures. No one in the lifeboats and no one in life jackets meant it was too fast to react. The only way to maybe find out what happened was to find the ship. Luckily, that wouldn't take too long. On November 14th, a Navy aircraft picked up the remains of the ship at the bottom of the lake in approximately 530 feet of water. Subsequent scans of the area picked up that the anomaly that the, the aircraft had found was actually two separate pieces separated by a short distance. Later on, they would send down a remote-controlled submersible with a camera. It was, in fact, the Edmund Fitzgerald. On the bottom of Lake Superior, on the side of what was left of this ship, were the words, the Edmund Fitzgerald. The mighty Fitz, the pride of the American side, the Titanic of the Great Lakes, had gone down with all hands, never to be seen again. This mighty ship that had traversed so much, that had set so many records, that had traveled so far and made it through so many storms, went down just 17 miles from where it would have been safe, where it would have been able to recover and make it through the rest of the storm. So what happened here? How did this massive freighter disappear beneath the waves so quickly that no one had any chance to even attempt an escape, even if it might have been in vain? The short story is, no one really knows. There are no recordings from the Edmund Fitzgerald right before it went down, and there are no eyewitnesses from the sinking. The ship was there, and ten minutes later, it was gone. Like, and I understand that this episode doesn't have a lot of details from on board the Edmund Fitzgerald. That's because... The, the, the ship is gone. We only have what McSorley decided to say over the radio. We only know they had a list. We only know they had a broken railing. We only know that a couple of the hatches were broken. We don't know anything else that was going on. Like, there's the one recording of him saying, don't let anyone on the deck. But why? Like, why is, why is that a thing he needed to say? He didn't specify, and the other captain didn't ask. Which is fitting for Great Lakes captains because they don't want to admit when they're in danger. But we don't we don't know what was going on on board the Edmund Fitzgerald right before it went down. It is a giant mystery. We can only infer from what we know. And what we know is, well, surprisingly little. 
The long story here is there are several theories as to what actually happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. The first we're going to talk about is the Three Sisters theory. If I'm remembering correctly, we discussed this particular thing in the White Hurricane episode, but just as a reminder, the Three Sisters phenomenon is when a rogue wave hits the ship and covers the deck with water, and then before that water can recede, a second rogue wave hits, covering it with even more water, and then a third one hits, overwhelming the ship and sending it to the bottom before anyone knows what happened. We already had one set of sisters hit the Anderson during the late portion of the event, like about an hour before the Fitzgerald went down. He reported those two waves that covered his whole boat. So, like, it had already happened, and those waves were likely headed for the Fitzgerald and would probably hit right around the time that the Fitzgerald went down. And on top of that, the Fitzgerald was already listing, so there was some water inside of the boat before the sisters came. So... It's not a stretch with the broken cargo hold covers that they get hit by two or three and it overwhelms the ship and sends it to the bottom. Like it's not an out of out of thin air theory. The next theory is that when the Edmund Fitzgerald went too close to Caribou Island, they actually hit Six Fathom Shoal and it damaged the hull, allowing a massive water leak into the bottom of the ship that was causing the list. This was supported by the list that the ship had developed and was not going away, despite Captain McSorley saying he had both pumps running, which means they were pumping 14,000 gallons out of the ship per minute. That means the water was coming in at an equal to or faster rate than it was pumping out. And I find it hard to believe that waves alone were putting 14,000 gallons of water in the ship per minute, like not not the sisters' waves, like normal waves were putting 14,000 gallons in the, the ship per minute, unless all of that water was going directly into the cargo, in which case they're not getting pumped out because it's settling amongst all that taconite ore, and there's no way to pump it out of there. It was also supported by the broken deck rail. These railings generally do not break from waves alone. It requires some sort of tension from either the bow, the stern, or the midsection. If they hit the shoal and it bent in the middle of the ship up while the back and the front went down, it would cause enough tension to break the cable, which is what happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. They had a broken cable. So it's hard to imagine that an actual wave broke that cable, causing that damage. So the theory goes that as the waves hit the Edmund Fitzgerald, it caused more and more and more damage to the midsection of the ship where it hit the shoal, and eventually it just fell out, and the Edmund Fitzgerald folded in on itself and went down. Evaluations were done on the Fitzgerald and Six Fathom Shoal, and damage was not found on either the ship or the shoal, showing that it would be struck. Like, there wasn't any damage to the bottom of the Fitzgerald that would show where it would have run aground on the shoal, and the shoal should have shown some damage from where a giant metal ship had hit it, and it didn't. So it doesn't seem that this one is likely, although it's still possible, because, I mean, it's 1975, so it's possible that they could have just missed something, and going and looking at it now is not going to show, you know, the damage on the shoal anymore, and it's, if it hit the midsection, the midsection of the ship just kind of fell out, and then some of the other parts of the ship landed on top of it, we may just not know. So it's still a reasonable theory. It's just not, I mean, possible. We don't know. 
The next theory, and one that seems fairly plausible to me, is that the cargo hold covers on top of the deck came loose and water began to enter the cargo hold, making the water situation worse. So what I mean by that is that um, several of the cargo hold covers, so the way they load it is they just dump it in from the top into the cargo hold. They take the covers off, they put a chute in, they drop the ore in, they put the cover back on, and they move on to the next one. So several of those covers came off and water began to enter the cargo hold. Now, once the water's in the cargo hold, it's going to settle at the bottom of all that taconite ore, and it's going to be impossible to pump out. So if that can water continue to get into the cargo hold over and over and over again, that's going to cause your list, and eventually it's going to cause the boat to sink. Also, all of that water in there is going to cause a shift in the weight of the boat, where the weight is located. So when the Edmund Fitzgerald is loaded, they make sure that it's even so that the weight isn't shifting one direction or the other to the to starboard or the port or the bow or the stern. You need to have it more or less level throughout the entire boat so you don't tip the front too far or the back too far or you go left or right too far so the ship is sitting perfectly level. So as you get more and more water into the cargo hold, that's going to change the layout of the load because the water is either going to rush forward or it's going to rush backwards or it's going to go side to side. Now, they already had a list, so it was already going one direction. But the theory here is that as the ship gained more and more water in the cargo hold, it began to sit lower and lower in the water, losing all of the freeboard it had left with the additional weight of the water. So when they went over a particularly large wave, the bow of the Fitzgerald launched forward into the bottom of the wave, which caused all the cargo to launch forward, plowing the bow into the bottom of the next wave and further shoving it down into the lake bed of Lake Superior. This caused the middle of the ship to break in two and launched the stern forward and twisted it upside down before both parts landed on the bottom of the lake underwater. It explains why no one was able to abandon ship or take any life-saving measures and explains the lack of damage from a shoaling. Like, think about that. If you went over the top of a particularly large wave and your front end went down and all of that weight rushed forward, it's when it gets to the bottom of that because it's not... The way a wave works is there's a base level of the water when it's perfectly calm and flat. And then as the waves go by, it's not pushing the wave up over that base level. It's dropping the water level. It's The water level is going up above that base level, and it's going down behind that wave to displace that water up into the wave. So as you go up over that big wave, there's going to be a giant valley behind it that's going to be lower than what's normal. So when it goes up over that wave and then dips forward, it's going to jam down into it, and if you have all of that weight of the water and the load and the ship itself, it's going to jam it down. If it's in shallow enough water, it could strike the bottom of the lake and cause it to buckle. Now, you, being on that boat, are not going to be able to predict that, so your boat splitting in half and launching you and very likely killing you on impact as your giant freighter rips in two is going to make it so literally no one in the entire ship would have any time to make any life-saving measures whatsoever. Because they're all going to be stuck inside. Nobody's going to be on the deck, 
it is freezing cold, it's a snowstorm, and these waves are giant, and their risk jump driving over the top of the deck and washing you off. So everyone's going to be inside the boat. No one's going to make it out alive. The last theory, and another one that seems fairly plausible, is a structural failure. All of these are technically structural failures, just different modes of structural failure. So one of the chief complaints about the Fitzgerald when it was in use is that during rough seas, the ship seemed to spring back into place like a diving board. So on most boats, when they go over the, the waves, they kind of flex a little bit and then they'll slowly come back up. Like they're, like they're almost on a hinge, almost. Not quite a hinge, but similar. In, with the Fitzgerald, it wasn't like a hinge. It wasn't like it was flexing with the water to make it so that it didn't... Uh, it, it gave it some bend, it gave it some flex. So there was some give with the waves. With the Fitzgerald, instead of having some give, it just kind of sprung back into place. Like it wasn't, it wasn't meant to bend it or flex at all. It just kind of foom right back into place. And that that's a problem because when you are going over these giant waves, if you just have this straight thing that's... Because you can't make a steel beam that's 729 feet long, several of them, they have to be connected somehow. So most boats are riveted together or were riveted together so that they could flex and move with the waves. But the Edmund Fitzgerald was welded. And welds do not have flex, they do not bend. If welds flex or bend, then they break. Which is why it seemed like the Edmund Fitzgerald was a springboard, because it it was. They If it bent, it bent the steel and then boom, back into place until the welds broke. And several of the people that worked on the Edmund Fitzgerald after that had worked on it before the disaster, who were working on their ships at the time, said that they saw numerous broken welds all over the ship from, you know, years past. So this particular theory is that the continuous pounding of the waves caused the middle section of the Fitzgerald to catastrophically break apart on the surface, with the bow plunging under the waves and the stern remaining afloat for a few moments, dumping the load of taconite all over the place underwater before it too sank under the waves. This theory is supported by the distance the two halves of the ship are apart and the fact that a lot of the cargo is spread out in a wide area all over the shipwreck, indicating that it was afloat and was dumping load out as it went to go sink. So if it broke apart underwater, there's less area for the load to come out. Before it hits the ground, it's not going to, I mean, it's ore. It's not going to float. So there's less time for it to spread out, but it's spread out over such a wide area that this theory believes that it broke up on the surface, the stern stayed afloat for just a minute before falling over and sinking, and it dumped some of the ore everywhere. And it makes sense, because with welds, they are going to break, and they are not made to be flexible. But in the end, no one actually knows what happened, and we will likely never know. There were a lot of reasons as to why it happened that we do know, though. Like, we know why this happened, we just don't know how. And that's an important distinction. We know why the Fitzgerald went down. We know why all of this came to this conclusion. We just don't know the specific mechanism. Now, complacency is a big one here. 
The Fitzgerald had made this trip many times through similarly predicted storms. It was just another trip to them. So they continued on the normal, faster course rather than take a more protected route or take waiting it out. Because they did. They started on a more the, the more southern route. It wasn't until the storm got bad that they decided they needed to head north and take some shelter before they had to go south. Now, in the end, it doesn't really matter because that stretch didn't really affect the actual sinking. But it gives you an idea of where Captain McSorley's head was at. He believed that the Edmund Fitzgerald could make this trek. He believed that they were going this was just another storm. Like it wasn't it had taken him a while to get to the point where he was like, "Yes, this is a major problem." And he never called for help after the list. He asked for help and guidance, but he didn't ask for, "Hey, we might have to abandon ship because bad things are happening." And he would have likely known. He was a very, very well-seasoned captain. He likely just believed that he could make it to the end and didn't want to call for help if he didn't need it. This also concludes complacency in the reduction in freeboard. The reduction in freeboard was likely approved by the Coast Guard because they'd been getting pressured by shipping companies so that they could move more ore faster. And the fact that the freeboard was so low and the waves were expected to be about 10 feet high, and there was only about 11 feet of freeboard on the wreck, or the Fitzgerald, well, it's not, like, that's only a foot. Like, that, that's not much at all. That's a lot of water coming up over the deck. And that reduction in freeboard very likely played at least a significant portion of this disaster. And also... More complacency from the U.S. Coast Guard because they they would know that this was more dangerous. They would know that this could be a problem. And also the complacency of not having the right equipment to go out and do a search and rescue mission. It was it was pointless. There was like they wouldn't have had a rescue mission to actually do because everybody was gone. The 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 whole ship went down. The crew went down with the ship. No one ever made it out. But the fact that they had to call on the ships that were already out there to do their job for them is significant complacency. And this also leads to our next big reason, maintenance. Several of the covers for the hatches were broken and not fixed before this trip. There were also questions about how seaworthy the Fitzgerald actually was when they set sail that November day. Like, if you take the several reports of broken welds, all of that, it's very likely that the Fitzgerald may not have been seaworthy and never should have taken that load. But complacency and wanting to make money, it, what happens? Now, several changes were made to Great Lakes shipping practices after the Edmund Fitzgerald was lost. Any ship over 1,600 tons load capacity was required to use depth finders at all times. The reduced freeboard allowance was rescinded. Navigational charts were updated for accuracy because they did find out during this that the Six Fathom Shoal actually extended a mile further than had been previously put on navigational charts, so that was fixed. Um, the National Weather Service updated their prediction procedures for wave heights because they had predicted waves of 10 feet, 8 to 10 feet, give or take. Uh, actual wave heights had been 10 to 20 to 25. Like, it was significantly more than they predicted. So they went back to the drawing board and redid how they do wave predictions. And it's been pretty good since. 
Uh, all ships have to have their hatch covers and life-saving equipment inspected by the U.S. Coast Guard before November. Um, they also all have to have them all latched at all times. Um, it came out that oftentimes boats wouldn't latch all of their hatch covers if they expected calm seas. And when the Edmund Fitzgerald left on uh, November 9th, it was sunny and calm and kind of warm for November. So it's possible, not likely, but it's possible that they had not latched all of their hatch covers before they left. And one of the uh, former sailors on the Edmund Fitzgerald that testified said that it would take 20 to 30 minutes for two of them to latch all of the hatch covers in rough seas if they didn't do it before they left. We don't know, obviously, because the underwater surveys of the Edmund Fitzgerald showed several of them missing or damaged, which makes sense because the ship split in two, but it's possible that several of those hatch covers had come off because they weren't latched at all in the wind. So that's another thing that was changed. The day after the disaster, the Mariner's Church in Detroit rang its bell 29 times. Once for each life lost aboard the Fitzgerald. There were 29 sailors aboard the Fitzgerald, with several of them, upwards of six, on their last season before retirement. And there were several who had just started and were in their second or third season. So there was a wide range of shipping uh, expertise on the ship, uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald, when it went down. And several of the men were very excited to start their retirement as soon as they finished these last couple of runs with the Edmund Fitzgerald, including Captain McSorley, whose wife had recently had a stroke and was in a nursing home in Michigan. And he had told her that after these last couple runs, he was going to retire and spend more time with her. Unfortunately, he would never make it home. As far as memorials, the bell from the Fitzgerald sits in the Great Lakes Shipwreck, Shipwreck Museum in Michigan, and it sits there to this day. And then, of course, there's the world-famous song by Gordon Lightfoot, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But essentially... When you get right down to it, all that remains are the faces and the names of the wives and the sons and the daughters. And with that, we've reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on all the social medias. I'm there on basically all of them. Um, I appreciate you guys for sticking around. Uh, I know it's been a long, long time. And I hope to not have to leave you guys again like that for a long, long time because that wasn't fun. Um, as always, I hope you guys stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.